You know, you have to build trust. And the trust is when you are consistent with your message, you are transparent. I think when everybody sees that, from the governors, from the provincial government to the municipal government, and even the communities that you help, and they see that you're there as a helping hand and not, you know, somebody who's lording them around. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Today, I'm in conversation with Marvi Rubeno Trudeau, the Deputy Executive Director of the Philippines Shell Foundation. Marvi initially studied business management and funded a firm which represented foreign companies at the Asian Development Bank. After some years, she and her husband retired to Palawan, an island in the Philippines archipelago. Once there, she was moved to come out of retirement in order to address various social issues in the community, namely malnutrition and high rates of malaria. She was instrumental in planning and finding financing for the first province-wide anti-malaria project. Marvi later joined the Philippines Shell Foundation, which funded a community-based province-wide malaria program. The success of this malaria program enabled the foundation to be selected as a primary recipient of further grants from the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Recently, they've also began to work on addressing HIV in the region and in the country. Marvi, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Safa, for the invitation. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you so much. So to begin with, could you share a bit with us about your background and some of the experiences that prompted you to come out of retirement? Well, I come from a very big family of 11. I have 10 siblings, and I don't think we can be classified as very poor, but we're not rich. And with 11 kids in the family, you know how hard it's going to be. And so my father wanted me to be a doctor. And um, I knew that was going to be a very expensive course. And I wanted to help the family as soon as possible. So I took up social sciences, which probably gave me the better understanding of people and how people behave and and the like. And then I went to further my, my education by getting into business management and international management. And so growing up in a big family uh, where resources are scarce, I still saw my parents and my brothers and sisters helping out the communities. So I grew up in a family, in a home that basically looks at helping as part of our lives. So when I got to Palawan, I saw a lot of the social inequities, as you said, malnutrition, and I couldn't believe why are they malnourished when there's a lot of fish with all of the seas around us. And and there's a lot of land that seemed to be untended. And so I started talking to basically the women of the community and told them that, you know, you can have backyard gardening. And, and so people thought of me as, you know, what are you trying to do? And I'm just saying that 
there are many ways of having a better life. I think because that's how I grew up. We were living in a nice village, but we were the source of vegetable in the village because we were planting our own vegetables. We had a few heads of chicken for our eggs and, and the like. And we were living in Metro Manila. And I don't see why in a provincial setting such as Palawan, this cannot be done. And so that's basically where I came from. And having the example of growing up that way, it was easier for me to talk to people, easier for me to relate. Like, you know, I know what hardship is. And I know that it's, it may be a difficult life, but we can survive it. And I would stand up and be an example to them. And I found out that the place that we chose to be our home has the highest incidence of malaria in the country. And so when people just take the medicines like a common cold, I know that there's going to be a lot of problems by doing that. Self-medication and self-medication like a common cold is not right. The folktales were you get malaria from eating pineapple in an empty stomach or drinking uh, coconut water in an empty stomach. And a lot of all of these policies. And I said, so that's, I think, those were the things that pushed me to go into social development. And although the government has projects in the, in the province, and they have very good projects, I think the implementation usually is where it breaks out because it's not something that the community takes as their own. And therefore, it breaks down because it's something that is usually uh, rammed to their throats that they should be doing it. And people, when you ram it to their throats, they have a very negative way of responding. But if they understand why they're doing it and, and have ownership of the intervention, you can promote a lot of things when they understand what it's for. So when I started talking to them about, do you understand that the malaria is really coming from a parasite that is being transmitted by a mosquito. And, and to them, that was like, you know, uh, a revelation, but they don't believe me. <laughs> so I realized that the community that I was living in needed a lot of help. And because I saw myself as retired when I came to Palawan, I had all of the time to help, right? I mean, how can you ignore these things and you know that you can provide them the better knowledge and better understanding of uh, what causes all of the hardships that they are in? And before I knew it, I was in the thick of it. <laughs> and so went to see the provincial government about the malaria program. They said it's a cost for concern, but we don't have the funds for it. So I said, I am volunteering to look for the funds. And because I did not have anything on my plate at that time, I came in retired. I had all of the time to look for funding. And it was a very opportune time because uh, Shell was going to come in with this big gas project. And I said, well, there's one opportunity. So I presented it to Shell Philippines Exploration, and I got my first $1 million. I was only asking actually for 10 million pesos, which was about uh, 200,000 US dollars. And then they asked me, if we give you the, the $200,000 or 10 million pesos, how do you propose to cover the rest of the project? I said, if I can 
convince you that this is a project to invest in, I said, I'm sure I can convince any other private sector in Palawan who are working in Palawan because this is a common scourge and it's a long scourge. Everybody thinks that malaria is a common cold. And so if we can put up a provincial project, then I know that we can make an impact, a province-wide malaria program that will finally help the, the province with this scourge. And then they turned around and they said, well, I think we will give you the entire fund, but we want you to be the program director. And I said, um, you know, I cannot just say yes right away. I said, I have to talk to the, to the province, the governor, the provincial government to see where they want to bring this forward, knowing that there's now a fund. And they agreed that I should be the director. I had all of the ideas. I had all of the, the passion to, to do it. And I had all of the time to do it. So that was the start of my career. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. And it's so unique in your case that you had actually retired. You had closed the chapter in your work life. You've moved to Palawan, but because of the social issues you saw in your community, you were moved to get involved and, you know, you spoke with the government, you applied for funding, you were awarded the $1 million initially, you were appointed director of the program. So could you share a bit with us about how you felt about being given that responsibility and having to then put the funds you received into action in collaboration with all the other stakeholders? Well, the first thing to do actually is get the buy-in of everyone. I didn't think that, you know, I can do it alone. There's absolutely no way I can do it alone. And, you know, when you have 1,700 islands in this province and there's 23 municipalities and one city, so each of those local government units you'll have to discuss with. And so the first thing I asked the, the governor and the vice governor then was, can you call the mayors? And I want to present them the, the project. I already had the $1 million, but how do I implement it? I mean, I know that the, the provincial government was going to fully support me on this, but you still need the buy-in of all of the mayors of all of these little towns in the province. And so uh, there was an opportunity where they had a provincial meet, and I asked for two hours with the mayors. And a lot of them did not believe that malaria can be eliminated because they said, once you have malaria, you have it. You have it for the rest of your life. I said, my reading and my talking to the doctors says that if you remove the parasite from the body, you can actually get rid of malaria. And so I said, you know, you'll have to give us a chance because we have this funding and we don't want to waste it when the mayors are not convinced to support it. And so I think because the governor and the vice governor were supporting it, you know, they couldn't do anything but support it. And so I said, let me go down to the legislative body of each of the municipalities and explain how the project is going to be run. I did not want to spend a lot of funds hiring people. And so I said, the structure that I have in mind is a community-based approach, and I will go to the community where the malaria is highly endemic. 
I said, I have to let the people know that they need to act as a community. But I needed the help of the municipalities, the mayors and the vice mayors and the legislative body, because I will set up a group of volunteers that will do community-based diagnosis. So I had to set up community laboratories. And so the laboratories were manned by volunteers, usually the mothers, because when I went to the communities, the male population were off to work. And so I had the mothers with me and I had to talk to them and say, you know, you have these kids that are getting sick and are absent in their schools all the time because you think it's malaria. You have a husband who's working hard, and once he gets fever, you think it's malaria. I said, let's know for once if this is really malaria. With the help of the Department of Health and the provincial health offices, we actually set up the community laboratories. So we got a volunteer, a resident of the community, trained them for 35 days, in how to look at a microscope and look for the malaria parasite, do the blood screening and the like. But I needed, I needed governance to do that. I needed the help of the local government units to set up the parameters for doing all of this. And of course, these were volunteers. And so I had to go back to the mayors and the legislative body and say, they're doing such a great job. Give them some incentive. I mean, for the first time, we know the status of malaria in your community. For the first time, it's not just, you know, we think. And it's probably. So now for the first time, you know that you have the number of confirmed cases. And when we know the problem, we know we can solve it. And so it, it started hard. And even the communities felt that I have malaria once, I will have malaria for the rest of my life. There is a lot of re-education that needs to be done, information dissemination that needs to be done. So we went to schools, mother classes, and anything and everything that we can do to promote uh, the knowledge on how to prevent malaria. Because the money was only good for setting up all of the 344 community microscopies. But what do you do when you know that you know, they have malaria. It was such a good faith that the Japanese government came in with 75,000 mosquito nets for the province and the drugs to treat malaria. So now there's a very nice synergy of two big programs that were implemented together. And so in five years, actually, the cases of malaria dropped by 65%. Wow, what a great decrease. So uh, you talk about the importance of establishing or fostering buy-in from the local government authorities at the different levels, but also the other stakeholders involved. What were some of the ethical challenges that you were faced with when uh, building those relationships, building trust, trying to get everyone on board, and having clarity around who is responsible for what part of the project? Yes, I think transparency is a very important aspect of project implementation. Everybody knew that I was able to get uh, a million dollars. And so in any eyes, that's like a lot of money. 
And so I, I needed to show everybody how I spent it. I created e-news so that I can just spread it out. This is where the money went. And this is how much microscopy training would cost. So when you have 35 days and you have all of these resources coming from Manila, and I have to house them usually in uh, well-lit hotels because, you know, you have to have the right lighting for teaching microscopy. And, and so I think those were the things that were very important for them to see that, you know, I was working as, working as hard as they were. And I wasn't like, you know, being a prima donna on anything. I dirtied my hands. I sat down with them. I stayed in the community for weeks. You know, you have to build trust. And the trust is when you are consistent with your message, you are transparent, and they see that you are as passionate as you want to be to help them uh, get rid of the parasite, get rid of the scourge of malaria in their communities. I think when everybody sees that, from the governors, from the provincial government to the municipal government, and even the communities that you help, and they see that you're there as a helping hand and not, you know, somebody who's lording them around and like. And I think it shows. It shows when you're sincere in trying to help. And I think that's, that's, those are the real values that I can share. Because I think when one is dishonest about something, if you're caught lying, then you're a liar, no matter how small it is. And therefore, my mom taught me that. If you lie and you're caught lying, the next time you speak, 11 out of the 10 will not be uh, believed. And so it's something that you carry on. You carry something that, you know, those are values that I share. You know, with all of the team members that I have, I share that value. And I continue to share that value, even if I've grown and have become a bigger leader, for example, in the organization. Yes. So in that dynamic, there's also, of course, the involvement or the role of the donors or the funders. So later on, when you were awarded the grant from the Global Fund, how has it been to also work with them and um, negotiate each other's maybe different opinions or different perspectives? Yes, uh, I think because of the success of the uh, initial program in Palawan, I, I don't think we went unnoticed. You know, we were, we were getting visitors from the World Health Organization and then the Global Fund. And then when the Global Fund saw what we've done, they said, I think you should apply for a grant. They have a structure. They have the country coordinating mechanism and all of these structures that you have to go through. And the first thing that needs to be done is to figure out how this proposal that we're going to put up was going to compete with the country proposal for malaria. And the Global Fund only funds one disease per country. So there's usually three diseases. So there's HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis, but there's only going to be one grant for malaria. And so when you have, when you're working in the province with the highest incidence of malaria, and you've shown that you're doing it the, the community-based way, you know, people actually saw that I might be competing with a country proposal. That's the first hurdle that I had to go through. 
And so I, I had to sit down with the Department of Health and, you know, we agreed that, you know, you cannot just be doing this for Palawan. You'll have to do it for the top five provinces of the country, at least. So as a compromise, that's basically what our first proposal to the Global Fund is. And we got that. We got that proposal uh, approved. And of course, it, it was a shock to me. Global Fund then was also just starting and they were changing policies left, right, and center. And, you know, you're just trying to, to adhere to one policy and after three or four months, they think that it's better to do this. And so, you know, you scratch your head, but you continue because you know that the funds were big enough to be able to impact a lot of people. There was a lot of confusion during the first years of the Global Fund implementation, but we were resilient. We wanted to be because the funding was enormous and we know that the big funding was going to help a lot of people. And it did because the first, the first grant, I, I think we got $14.3 million to cover for the top five provinces uh, of the country. And in three years' time, we actually put two of them in pre-elimination stage. So that means they were already going below, going into a stage where you can actually control the malaria incidents in that area. So that was such a big success. And, and so we continued to request for grants every, every round. And so from five, we went to 40 provinces. And of course, that's even bigger money. But uh, there's a lot of rigidity in how they do things. And, you know, performance framework and how you do this. We have local fund agents that check on us every six months on how we spent the money and how we are achieving our targets. You know, but I'm, I'm one person, though, that, do not get upset with audits. I like audits because, you know, I cannot look at everything all by myself. And although you have a team that you trust, you want an outside look uh, to tell you that, yes, you're doing a great job or, uh, you know, a few quinks here that you need to, to check on and to probably change gear on. But I don't mind that at all because I know that the audits that are being done will actually make our team improve and make the implementation of the program in the country improve. I look at them as having the, the ability to have all of the experts in their hands and, and be able to guide us where to go. I mean, we have to give them the, the local context, uh, how we do things here and how the communities perceive these interventions. And, you know, when you put those things together, I think it's a big marvel to see how things work when the, the synergy is actually done correctly. I mean, there are other grants that are high-handed in how they want to handle things. But the Global Fund seems to be able to, to listen to how the countries do it. And they actually insist that, you know, when we do the proposal, it has to be something that the countries accept and that the key affected populations are actually consulted. And I, I think that's the right way to do it. 
they have the funds. They they need to bring the funds out because that's their mandate. But they listen to what the country can do and how we do things. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm, right. Absolutely. Yes. In relation to that, you mentioned how the province-wide program was so successful that then it expanded to a nationwide program. You continue to receive funding, but not only for the malaria program, but also for an HIV program. And um, that work also involved really building relationships with community members in remote areas, in areas with indigenous communities. Could you share a bit with us about what it's also been like to build relationships with community leaders or tribal leaders and have that be a part of your work or your role as well? I I think the malaria program was such a, a vehicle for a lot of the help that the communities actually got. Because, you know, when one is immersed, as I was during the initial stages of the program, I see that the indigenous people were, you know, having a hard time. They have a set of needs that are not explicit when one looks at communities. And you come in and you still want to promote the malaria program and make the implementation of the malaria program good. And so what is it that they need that needs to be done? And so you sit down with them. And in the same manner as you have to get the buy-in of the mayors and the vice mayors, you have to get the buy-in of the chieftains and the community members. They're not very trusting. Uh, When you come in, you're basically seen as an outsider and not part of the tribe, right? We have a way of uh, working with them. And I, I look at this by bringing in the critical tree analysis you know you put up the tree throw it on the on the sand or on the ground and say you know this is a tree and when you see the branches getting brown there must be something wrong with the tree right and so let's look at that as the malaria problem what are the root causes of this problem and then we come in and say so how do you think we can solve this Uh, So I said, you know, we come in and we give you nets and uh, you claim that it's too hot to use. And, you know, okay, so you don't like using nets, but let's explain again why you need to use nets. And so you, you bring that back and forth and you say the resources are here. We are going to give you all of these resources to respond to some of these problems that you have in this tree. And it's only when they see the the light come in and say, oh yeah, so that's why we need to use the net because they bite during the time when we're asleep, not in the daytime. I said daytime would be dengue. And so, you know, all of these things, but you have to provide it to them in a, in a way where they chew the problem little by little and trying to figure out the solution by themselves. Of course, we're there to facilitate, we're there to help them, But the buy-in is important. To me, anything that you do in the community, if there's no buy-in, it will never happen. You come in and they probably will be nice and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But then you turn around and they won't do it. So if you want to be able to come in and get somebody from the community to be your advocate so that they continue to advocate even when you're no longer there. So those are challenges that I've had. But there are other challenges. 
I think it was very good for me to see all of the problems that are happening on the ground while you're doing a community-based malaria program. Because it's community-based, I was able to go to the families, the people in the community, at the community level, and figure out the problems that can be supported. For example, you know, we built microscopy centers. And so they have suddenly a community laboratory where a member of the community is actually the one checking their blood. But they don't have power. So one of the things that I've done was to actually go back to Shad and I said, you have solar in your products. And so I said, can I ask you please to look for some uh, solar equipment that I can put at the microscopy centers? So we established 344 microscopy centers, but there are health stations that do not have power also or clinics that do not have power also. And so I was able to get 500 of these individual solar home systems and I was able to put it up in the microscopy uh, centers and some of the hospitals and some of the health stations. And I said, you know, so now every time you see a light, that is your beacon. That means that you've come to a point where there is help. So in a very dark forest and you see suddenly a light, then you know that, you know, help is close by. And so this program actually became a start of a very big program of the foundation of providing microgrid system to IP communities. We now have seven uh, of the IP communities that are now well lit. They just flick a switch and they have power in their community. They have lights on the road and they have power to play basketball in the evening or whatever. Even livelihood activities that they can do. They can do better weaving because they have more lights and they can extend their, their weaving hours because there's light. So the malaria program to me is such a, a manna from heaven, if you can say that, because it has opened up a lot of programs that could have been just ignored. But it's there and we saw it. It started with just trying to put the microscopy centers with power so that they can continue to diagnose even during the rainy season or during the time when the clouds are there and you can have the sun powering the, the mirror of the microscope. And to become a microgrid system, microgrid program that provides power to communities that would not have had the opportunity to have that power because it's too far from the electric companies or the providers and, and therefore are in the list of the priority for their development. And then there are others, like, you know, you see that our plant communities, they don't have doctors. The government has a health volunteer system. And so when we started, you know, we know that there's what they call the health workers and the community health workers. But most of them were not trained to do any first aid or anything about health, actually. They're just there because it's a requirement to have one health worker in the village. And most of them were being used for political uh, programs and the like. And so one of the other things that I put in was to set up health 
system strengthening by capacitating all of these health workers that have been identified by the government anyway. So they're there. The structure is there. But we have to capacitate them so that they can become real health workers to understand the programs that are being implemented by the Department of Health and to be able to respond to emergencies, uh, first aid and, and the like. We set up the referral system so that they don't become quack doctors and you know think that they can now inject or do anything, nothing of that sort. So they just were capacitated to realize that they need to bring this person to the nearest hospital or, you know, they can respond with first aid. Uh, so we also provided um, a reference book for them. So it's, you know, I, I, I saw this book once where it says villages without doctors. So barrios without doctors is what uh, it was. And I thought that this was something really handy. And so I spoke to the Department of Health who actually created that book and said, can we print it so that all of our health workers can actually have a guide for them to go through when there are no doctors in the barrios, no doctors in the village. With that program, I, we called it Lingap Sakalusugan, which is Care to Help. And uh, that care to help actually was able to capacitate almost 7,000 village health workers. So again, it came from the malaria program. The malaria program was a vehicle for me to respond to other of the health issues of the communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having a more holistic impact or having a more health system-wide strengthening approach. That also leads me to this question around sustainability. So you have over the years had this more long-term funding or you've been awarded grants year after year or funding year after year. But in terms of thinking about the actions that need to be taken in order to make these changes sustainable, to make these programs sustainable in the long term, earlier you mentioned the importance of having local ownership. But of course, funding is also an issue. So could you speak to us a bit about your approach or the process trying to make this Malaya program sustainable for years to come? From the very start, when I started with just the $1 million from Shell, I knew that the fund was going to be finished pretty soon, right? And so even at the start, when I engaged the legislative body, my purpose of approaching the legislative body is to actually get them to have a resolution or an ordinance supporting the program and that they can actually put in a budget first to support the community health workers because they were, were volunteers. All of them were volunteers. And therefore, you know, how do you sustain the interests of one person if, you know, they cannot, it cannot help them get food on their table? So you have to figure out what is the need of the community microscopy so that they stay as community microscopies. And the only thing I can uh, think of is get the local government to pay for their incentives, provide them the proper incentives, recognize their role in the communities, and ensure that they continue to provide the recognition that is required. But also, then you have to ensure that all of these microscopy centers are actually 
incorporated in the health system. It is not a project. It is part of the health system. And therefore, if it's part of the health system, then the entire work of the rural health unit includes them, focuses on, you know, if we're talking about many diseases, you're not just talking about malaria. But you know that you have this set of volunteers that you can tap even for other diseases. And I think when you can now start synergizing all of the human resources that are available and the the equipments that are available and provided and using it for other diseases, then I think the sustainability of that program can be uh, ensured, right? So when you have a microscopy that was given for just for malaria, then after about five years, we're already talking about why not use the microscopes also for, you know, looking at worms or uh, tuberculosis or others that need the microscopy centers. When you start integrating the role of these people, then the sustainability of interest of that person to continue to help in the health uh, of the community is there. But more so because you know that the health system from the municipal health officer and all of the health systems understand that they are part of their group and therefore they should be looked after. And as they saw the drop in the cases of malaria all over the country, you know, uh, there are 81 provinces in the country. And at the end of 2020, we now have just three provinces that are still affected by malaria. We did not do a country-wide approach. We did the provincial-wide malaria elimination. And one by one, the provinces were declared malaria-free. And therefore, we're now in the last three provinces. And, you know, the Global Fund can claim credit to that because, you know, the, the support that they have given is substantial and has been sustained so that we can get into where we are right now. And this is the plea that I am asking to all of the government whenever I talk to them that we've had a lot of gain. We've had a lot of challenges that we have overcome and being able to reach this far. You know, declaring the Philippines as malaria-free is reachable. Whenever I talk, I always tell them that, you know, you have to be vigilant. You have to continue your surveillance. If you don't, and this just comes back to a reintroduction of malaria, then we will start all over again. And we don't have the funds to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, so far, we've spoken a lot about the, the specific context of the malaria program, the processes and approaches, but maybe coming to a more personal reflection, could you share with us a bit about how over the past years, how has it been to be working on this issue, being a leader, coming out of retirement, taking on this, you know, large and massive scale of work and responsibility? Have you ever, you know, questioned it or your have your motivations changed or have you ever felt very overwhelmed by taking this on? All the time, all the time, Saf. I, I, I feel that, you know, I created monsters around me when I didn't have to, when I could have just put up my feet and read. But looking back, though, it's still a very fulfilling job. I've always wanted to help people. And during the first 10 years of my stay in Palawan, I've helped a handful. 
But by being involved in this job in a corporate foundation such as Filipino Shell Foundation, I was able to help thousands. And now uh, with the Global Fund, I was able to help millions. The last count is over 12 million. So I think I'm still focused in the fact that I want to be able to share my blessings. There's really no reason why one cannot help. If one can, then why not? And I think I took that path. I took the path of trying my best with everything that I have, with my resources, with my knowledge about things, getting the people to understand where I'm coming from. I like the fact that I see people impacted. I see their lives change. And to me, that is a very nice feeling in the heart. And I, I'd like to continue that. Yeah, one step at a time. Wonderful. So this is also something that I wanted to do, ask you earlier. You know, you work with the Philippine Shell Foundation, a corporate foundation. There are a lot of questions around the role of private sector actors or the role of corporate companies, the work that they do on social issues around the world. How has it been in your experience to be affiliated with a corporate foundation or what do you see as the potential of the private sector for contributing to community development issues and maybe some of the ethical issues related to that? I think it's a very good question. Because I think uh, a lot of the private sector can actually do wonders uh, by investing in social issues. But I hope that when they do invest, they actually invest in partnership with the local government units. A lot of the private sectors are actually worried about working with the local government units because it can be seen as, you know, bribery anti-corruption policies are being compromised and the like. But I think if you do it well and you are uh, very clear that it is not perceived as a bribery, then I think the private sector can actually help. And, and luckily for me, actually, it doesn't seem to be a cost because it looks like when I make a proposal to the management, I have never really factored in what's in it for the business. I factored in that, you know, what's in it for the business would be good relationship, good relationship with community, uh, very good reputation for bringing up a program like that. And unlike other organizations where, you know, they have social investments and it actually comes back to them as profit. And uh, because the foundation that I work for is really nonprofit, we're not allowed to make money. And, and therefore, you know, we have to be efficient. I deal with it as a business because I have to make sure that, you know, we don't waste funds. But uh, because the business is actually not putting me on the strings, so to speak, I am able to implement programs without strings attached, but it gives them good reputation. So if we can engage the private sector to just do that, be content with the reputational gain that they have for helping an issue, then they become very good neighbors and the acceptability of the their operations in the community is actually ensured, right? And 
as a recipient of the fund, of the global fund, it is very important for us to be very good stewards of the fund because Shell has a global reputation. And can you imagine if I, sorry for the word, screw up and not be able to show that funds are used well? Uh, the reputation that, that I am going to hurt by doing that. So I'm always on my toes to think that for every move that I make, I make it because I'm doing a good job and I'm doing it because it's impacting the people. If I use that as my first priority, then the reputation gain to the companies that I serve are actually going to uh, balloon to their advantage. And, and, and basically, I think that's how I see private sector. They have the opportunity for them to help and the social causes are there. And if they're operating in the communities where those social injustices and social issues are available, then it will be good for them to help because the non-technical issues of the operations can actually be insured. Having people support you in the community is uh, paramount to working smoothly in that community. Right. It all comes back to the relationships in the end. So, Marvi, just as a last question, you know, you have recently started your own foundation. Could you maybe tell us about the, the story behind starting your own foundation and maybe if you have plans for your second retirement or what are your thoughts right now in terms of your next steps? Well, I, I went to my boss and I said, I'm going to put up my foundation, but it's not going to be competing or in conflict with what I'm doing at the foundation. I was approached by a 36-year-old lady who has stage 3 cancer and didn't know what to do. And she showed me her prescription and I didn't know how to help her. So I went to the social media and I did a crowdsourcing. I said, how do I help? And I gave the details, not giving the name, but giving the details in her situation like this. And, and then I cannot believe the barrage of information that was given to me. You know, go to the, DS, the, uh, the social welfare, go to this, go to that. And I, I, I kept looking at all of this information that I got. And then I realized that because I have been working in the health sector, working on health issues, I have actually put up a lot of network uh, in health. And so I, you know, I called up one person and uh, who is with the Department of Health, and I said, do you have these medicines? And then he says, yeah, we have a medicine assistance program. And within that night, so on the first day that I approached everyone by a social media. Within that night, I got everything in the prescription. And so I was crying and I was saying, I can help some more. You know, I didn't go to offices and knock on their doors. All I need to do was pick up the phone and call up people and, you know, all of this. And I'm able to help one person. And that one person became uh, a scene for me to say, okay, I will put up another foundation that looks into helping individuals that are almost hopeless in their feeling because the prices of drugs are so exorbitant and they know that they cannot afford it on their own, navigate the health system for them and be able to help them as much as I can. 
And I started this in 2019. And of course, there's the pandemic last year. But even with that, I have now helped 13 people in this cause. And I haven't even put up all my time in helping these people. I have volunteers that have helped me screen the people and provide the medicines. I'm able to get the medicines according to the prescription that they have. And I talk to their oncologists and the oncologists would say they don't want to keep the medicines. So I had to get a, a refrigerator to put the medicines. In. I need to make sure that the medicines are handled well because it's, it's needed for the chemotherapy of these patients. So uh, there you go, Sapa. I mean, I've just started. And, and I've actually this week just gotten the, the approval for the registration. I, I hope that I can continue that, you know, work uh, after I retire. When I'm officially out of the corporate uh, foundation and I'm able to be on my own, I hope I can continue to help people. Yes, congratulations on that. Very exciting. And, you know, you're a very busy woman and we congratulate you on all your great accomplishments. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Safa. Thank you so much, Marvi. I really appreciate it. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the podcast. I invite you to join in on the conversation by going to our website, hitting the send us a voice message button and sharing some of your thoughts with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast player, rate and review past episodes and share our conversations with your friends. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.